Well, our passage today is on, is actually on the Lord's Supper, or sometimes called communion, or the Lord's table, or the Eucharist. And you've probably noticed that we've been observing this ordinance more frequently in recent days, recent months, both here in our celebration times and also in our small groups together. And we've sensed the Lord has been leading us to do that as a way of keeping the the cross and the gospel front and center in our worship of Jesus. But of course, there's also a potential danger, isn't there, in observing the Lord's table frequently. Some of you grew up in church backgrounds where you observed this ordinance every week. And I've had people tell me, you know, when that's the case, it can get to become kind of this ritual where you just go through the motions and it becomes kind of mechanical and you, and you don't really stop and reflect on the meaning of the ordinance. So we certainly need to guard against that as we celebrate the Lord's table more often. Well, we've been reading about this church in Corinth that Paul wrote this letter to of 1 Corinthians, and we've seen that that church has or had lots of issues, lots of problems. We know that Paul was no longer physically present with them, he had been their pastor for about 18 months, but he had moved on and was planning other churches. But he still had eyes and ears in Corinth. And uh, there were folks there who reported back to him what was going on. And a, a sizable portion of this first letter in 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing the issues that were brought up by his informants, his people there in Corinth. In today's passage, we're going to see Paul addressing the matter of how the Corinthians were conducting themselves when they came together to observe communion, the Lord's table. And what we're going to see in this passage is first a rebuke. How many of you know what a rebuke is? How many of you have ever been on the receiving end of a rebuke? It's a lot of fun, isn't it? First a rebuke, followed by a reminder, then a warning, or a series of warnings actually, and finally a word of instruction. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord, this is your word. It was your word through your servant Paul to the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, and it is your word to New Life Church today. Our hearts are open. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, notice the rebuke or the scolding or the correction. It begins in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul wrote this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. <laughs> for in the first place, when you come together as a church, the Greek word there is ekklesia, and in the New Testament, ekklesia never refers to a building. It always refers to an assembly of believers. When you come together as a church, an ekklesia, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is a very curious phrase. It probably refers to how God uses conflict in the church to make it evident who the mature believers are. The principle is that maturity is proven and revealed in conflict. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes, goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, 
another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Well, evidently, Paul had heard about how the Corinthian church, how they were conducting themselves when they came together around the Lord's table, and it brought him great consternation. He was not happy. He can't find anything to commend them for in this or to praise them for in this matter. Basically, in verse 17, he says that their church gatherings are doing more harm than good. Man, how would you like that said about our church gatherings? Hey, when you guys get together, it's just rotten. It's terrible. Hopefully that will not ever be the case with us, but it was with that church. And he's talking about the Lord's table, and he indicates that there were two ways that they were abusing or perverting the Lord's Supper. Number one, they were coming to the table divided. It says, I hear that there are divisions among you. The Greek word is schismata, schisms, factions, divisions. Now, we already knew this about this church, right? Way back in chapter 1, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for being divided. They were forming cliques around certain personalities, like fan clubs around their favorite rock star pastors and worship leaders. One group was saying, we follow Paul, and another group was saying, we follow Apollos. And another, we follow Peter. And a fourth group was saying, we follow Jesus. So the group was, the church was splintering into these cliques, these groups. Then in chapter 6, Paul told us that some Christians in that church were actually taking each other to court. They were suing each other. Talk about divisions. And then here in this chapter, we're going to get the sense that there was a schism, a division in this church between the wealthier believers who had means, and those who were poor, who had very little. And so the people were breaking into factions along social and economic lines, and this was showing itself even in how they went about partaking in the Lord's table when they came together. And Paul said, this is a huge violation of the intent of the Lord's table, that you're all divided and then a second part of his rebuke is he says, not only that, you're, you're coming to the table with a selfish disregard for others. He said, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now, in order to understand what was going on, we need to realize that early on, the Lord's Supper was actually part of a big potluck meal called the Love Feast. It was like this huge church picnic that people would come to, and they would bring their covered dishes to share with all the other believers. No doubt there was always an abundance of potato salad and especially green bean casseroles, which are always in super abundance at gatherings like this. And then as part of that love feast meal, there would be a time where there would be a special observance of the elements that represented the body and the blood of Christ. Well, what was happening there, as often happens with humans, is that Food started to become the focus, and the meal trumped the Messiah. You know how it goes. It's people saying, you know, hey, nobody better get between me and my pot roast today. Or, I sure hope Mrs. Baxter brought her scrumptious rhubarb pie again. 
And then the pushing and the shoving and the cutting in line began and everything just got all out of whack and it was a big mess. It says some were even getting drunk on the wine at the Lord's Supper for crying out loud. And Paul calls them out on this. And he basically says, you guys are perverting that which was meant to be sacred. You're abusing the Lord's Supper. You've turned the love feast into a gorge fest. This meal which was intended to demonstrate your unity and your oneness with each other and with Christ, you are making a mockery of. And he basically said, I got nothing good to say about you in this matter. Nothing. Not a zilch. Zero. Not one word of commendation for you. And so it was a a much needed rebuke. And it was followed by a much needed reminder of the original intent, the original purpose of the Lord's table back when Jesus first instituted it. Look at verse 23. Here's the reminder. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. He's basically saying, I've taught you about this. When I was your pastor, I taught you about the Lord's table. And what I taught you, I received from the Lord. Either meaning directly in in special revelation from Jesus himself or indirectly through his apostles, who were eyewitnesses there at the first communion. I delivered it to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Some translations have broken for you, but that's a word that was inserted. It doesn't say broken. Because we know that in actuality, the body of the Lord Jesus, no bone was broken to fulfill biblical prophecy. So it literally says, this is my body, which is for you, or which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul to the Corinthians says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in effect, he's saying, Church, let's go back to Christ's original purpose for instituting the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Let's recapture Jesus' original intent. Perhaps you recall in your upbringing, learning about how the ordinance of communion first came about. It was on that very first Maundy Thursday, the Thursday night of Holy Week, the night that he would later be betrayed by Judas in the garden. Jesus was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, wasn't he? We've talked quite a bit about the Passover meal in our study of 1 Corinthians, but maybe you weren't here. Let me refresh your memory What was it? It was a special commemorative feast observed by Jewish households once a year. During Passover, Jewish families would remind each other of all that God had done for his chosen people in the past, specifically in his delivering their their ancestors from bondage and enslavement under Pharaoh in Egypt, a bondage that had lasted about 430 years. And so they would come together in the Passover and celebrate God's deliverance from Egypt. It was really a memorial to God's redeeming love for his chosen people. It included observances that would remind them of how God delivered their ancestors from the terror of the death angel on that fateful night in Egypt. Do you remember that? The plagues and the tenth plague. 
And God had told his people, what I want you to do to be spared, your firstborn to be spared, is to kill an innocent lamb and take the blood and paint the blood on the doorposts of your homes. And then when the death angel comes through Egypt and he sees the blood, he will pass over you. That's where the name came from. The death angel will pass over you and you will be spared. Your family will be spared that tragedy. And so in the Passover meal, Jewish people would remember that the death angel seeing the blood passed over their ancestors' homes and spared God's people from judgment. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. And so in the Passover meal, the Jews would celebrate God as their Savior, their Deliverer. But then on that Thursday night, when Jesus was with his disciples eating that Passover meal, Jesus totally transformed the meaning and the significance of the Passover meal. He shifted the focus from God's deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt, he shifted it to his deliverance of his people from the bondage of sin. He shifted the focus from the dead carcass of the Passover lamb to his own body, which would shortly be sacrificed as the true lamb of God. And so in that moment, in that upper room with his disciples, Jesus captured the Passover meal for his own purposes. And he totally transformed it. Gave it brand new meaning and he told his followers, do this, observe this, until I come back. And we're still looking for that, aren't we? The return of Jesus. He promised he'd be back. And until he comes, we are to come together as believers, following his instruction and observe the Lord's Supper together. Now notice, when Jesus in that setting, held up the cup, held up the cup of wine. He said, it's the new covenant in my blood. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, the new covenant, him referring to that, implies that there was an old covenant, and there was. An old testament, an old covenant, an old promise. That had to do with God's promise to deliver his people out of Egypt and take them into the promised land of Canaan. You might recall that that Old Testament, that Old Covenant, was was ratified or sealed in blood. Initially, the blood of that innocent lamb spread on those doorposts, and then later, through the sacrificial system, week in, week out, month in, month out, the Old Covenant was sealed in blood. And then Jesus holds up the cup and says, this is the new covenant, the new promise, in my blood, in my blood. And so he declared he was introducing a brand new covenant a new promise to forgive all the sins of his people for all time through one all-sufficient sacrifice of himself. A beautiful covenant. That's what the New Testament is. And he said, you know what? It's also sealed in blood, not the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the lamb, his own blood. You know what, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are a participant in a much better covenant than the old covenant. It's a beautiful thing. We're graced, we're blessed to be able to say we are new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. A beautiful promise sealed by the shed blood of the Lamb, commemorated by the cup, which we celebrate. So Paul 
recalls all these things to the minds of the Corinthian church, things he had taught them when he had been there, when he had been their pastor. He says, remember this. Remember what I taught you. Remember what Jesus said when he instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Two purposes are given. First, a memorial. Why did Jesus institute the Lord's table? As a memorial. He said, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. It's to be a memorial where we remember his death. And second, it says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes in the Lord's Supper. So it's a proclamation of the gospel. A dramatization of the gospel with a, in, a, in a tactile way, something you can hold and touch and feel and taste. It is the, go, the gospel dramatized. That's what the Lord's table is to be. And so Paul was writing and saying, church, you're totally missing it. The Lord's Supper is not about food primarily. It's about Christ. That's what it's about. Wasn't it Jesus himself who said in John 6, My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And so in communion, in the the Eucharist, we affirm that we want to take Jesus in. We want him to be part of our lives and to fill us up with himself. Partaking of the elements is not to feed your appetite, it's to nourish your soul in Christ. Amen? Christ is present in a special way when we partake of the Lord's table. So he calls them back to the original intent for which Jesus instituted it. And then a warning, a series of warnings to not take it lightly, beginning in verse 27. Whoever, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. You might want to circle that little phrase, an unworthy manner. We'll come back to that. We'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, very interesting phrase, probably refers to fully grasping and understanding the meaning of the body of Christ. If you eat and drink without discerning the body, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. My earliest recollection of participating in communion, I think I was probably nine, maybe nine or ten. I, I, had, I believed that at the time that I was truly saved and our church was celebrating it. And I remember being in a, our church met in kind of a basement there and the ushers were distributing the elements. And I took the little wafer thing out of the plate. And I was nine, okay, so I had this thought. I wonder what would happen if I put this thing between my teeth and then when they said to eat that I would just crunch on it as hard as I could. And uh, so I did. And in this very solemn moment where everybody was very quiet, there's this crunch, you know, and 200 people are looking at me. And right after that, the pastor got up and he, he quoted this verse from the King James. Anyone who eateth or drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. I'm like, I'm in deep yogurt with God now. What do I do? Now, thankfully, God is merciful to the ignorant, and I made it through. I'm still here to talk with you today about the Lord's table. But he is merciful, and I think he understands when uh, we're just immature and ignorant. That's what it says. Verse 30, that is why... 
Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Yikes. But if we judged ourselves, truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a series of warnings given here. First, Paul says, partaking in an unworthy manner brings guilt. Literally makes us liable of the body and blood of Christ. Now, our question should be, what does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? Because we don't want to do that, right? I think the context helps us understand what this would mean. Certainly, to view the Lord's table as unimportant and insignificant and to take it very lightly and flippantly would be to come in an unworthy manner. The Lord does not want us to take his sacrifice lightly. I think we could say how we treat the Lord's table is in effect how we treat the Lord. I think that's inherent right in the scriptures here. Partake in an unworthy manner could also include focusing on food rather than on Christ, which is what was happening in that church. could also include being selfish rather than deferring to others. And I would say that partaking in an unworthy manner also includes coming and partaking of the elements when your heart is cherishing secret sin. And that's why it says, let a man examine himself first. And we do, don't we? Before we come and partake, we say, Lord, show me what's in my heart. Open my eyes. Shine the spotlight of your holiness on my heart. Show me what's in there so you can bring it to the surface so I can see it and confess it and repent of it and let go of sins that I've been cherishing and holding on to. To come to the table holding on to secret sin is to partake in an unworthy manner. Because didn't Jesus come and die to free us and set us free from sin? And so there's a warning here. Partaking in an unworthy manner brings guilt. It also brings discipline. Verse 29 and 30. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, grasping the seriousness of it, eats and drinks judgment on himself. The best translation of the Greek word krina there is chastisement. Discipline. Eats and drinks Discipline, chastisement on himself. And Paul told the Corinthians that the reason some of them were weak, the reason some of them were sick, and the reason that some of them actually had died is due to God's chastisement for their practice of partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So taking the gospel drama lightly can be hazardous to your health. Let's remember that. And so he knew that, he taught that. That's why he said, let a man examine himself first. Self-examination renders God's discipline unnecessary. For if we would judge ourselves, it says, if we would examine ourselves, then we won't need to be judged by the Lord or disciplined by him. I hope you do this every time you partake of the Lord's table in preparation. You just take a moment and draw a circle around yourself and say, Lord, My heart is deceitful, so examine me. Show me what's in my heart that I might repent and confess of that which is not pleasing to you. So he talks about God's discipline. Notice in verse 32 that God's discipline is for our good. It says that we should not be condemned, katakrino, condemned, damned with the world. 
The worst thing that could happen to a true Christian is to receive the ultimate chastening from God, which would be to kill you, which would send you to heaven. Now, I want to go to heaven, don't you? But I don't want to go prematurely because I've taken the Lord's table lightly. I don't want to be disciplined with the ultimate chastisement. I want to go to heaven, but I want to go when it's my time, and I imagine you do as well. I want to live more years and maybe even more decades for Christ. So Paul says, if that's in your heart, then examine yourselves before you come to the Lord's table. Make sure you can come with a clear conscience, with a clean heart. And then finally, the instruction. Verse 33, some final words of instruction. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Stop pushing and shoving and getting to the front of the line and just thinking about yourself. Wait for one another. Defer to one another. The implication is because you're one, because this is a celebration of the body of Christ of which you're a part. Verse 34, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, for discipline, for chastisement. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So apparently there were some other things about their observance of the Lord's table that Paul wanted to deal with, but he felt like, I can't do it in a letter. I need to look these people in the eye when I say these things. Let's talk for a moment about us and the Lord's table, us at New Life Church. And a couple of things that I draw from this. One is, before we partake even today, let's examine ourselves. Let's examine ourselves. Let's make sure that our conscience is clear, that we're right with our brothers and sisters. If you come holding on to bitterness and resentment towards another believer in the body of Christ, this is not a good thing. Make that right first. And second, let's do what Jesus said. Let's do it in remembrance of him, of Christ. And you know, I believe that, that we need to remember not just Christ's death, but the brutality and the scandal of Christ's death. We're going to do that in just a few moments. So brace yourself. We're going to see a depiction, a portrayal of the crucifixion of Christ, and it's brutal. You're going to want to turn away, and I would encourage you not to turn away. We need to be reminded of the brutality of the execution that Jesus endured. Let me give you some reasons why. Remembering the brutality of Christ's sacrifice reminds us of how offensive sin is to God. Because you're going to see that on screen and you're going to realize it took that to pay for my sins. So a little slap on the wrist wasn't enough. It had to be a slaughter of the innocent Son of God. Seeing the brutality of crucifixion reminds us of how offensive sin is to God. It also reminds us of the extent to which God is committed to upholding his own glory. Upholding his own glory. You see, Romans 3 says that for centuries, God, in essence, overlooked sins during the period of the Old Testament. He overlooked sins. David committed adultery. He committed murder. And God said, I forgive you. No righteous judge would do that. And God knew that. He knew his own glory was on the line. And so to vindicate his own righteousness, he sent his own son as a propitiation 
for our sins. That's how much God treasures and values his own glory. The brutality of the crucifixion shows us that in dramatic form. Third, remembering the brutality of the crucifixion reminds us of the scandal and outrage of the substitutionary atonement. You're going to see that on screen and you're going to go, he didn't deserve that, he didn't deserve that, and you're absolutely right. Totally innocent, but the scriptures tell us he died for our sins. He suffered for our iniquities. And yeah, it was scandalous. It's brutal. We deserved it. It also reminds us of how much the Son loves the Father. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating kind of execution. Obedient to who? Obedient to his Father. I only do those things that please the Father, not my will, but yours be done. The brutality of the crucifixion shows us how much the Son loves the Father and is submissive to Him. It also shows us how much the Father is committed to exalting His Son above everything and anything else. Philippians 2 again, He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God the Father has highly exalted Him, given Him, the Son, name that's above every name. That at the name of, say it, Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. The cross is one reason why God, the Father, is so committed to exalting the name of his Son above every other being in the universe because he went through that. And finally, remembering the brutality of Christ's crucifixion, reminds us of the ultimate expression of God's love for us. For us. Why? Because the cross solves our greatest problem. Doesn't it? God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross solves our greatest problem, our alienation from God. Colossians 1 says, You has he reconciled, who were dead in trespasses and sins, alienated from God. And so when you see what Jesus went through on the cross, one of the messages messages that needs to ring true in your heart is this, God loves me. God must really love me. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a propitiation for our sins. The ultimate expression of God's love for you is not what happened in your life this week. It's what happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. While we were sinners, Christ died for us.